I have been informed on uh, more than one occasion that I use big words when I preach. Uh, too big, in fact. And my, my usual response is that uh, sometimes it takes big words to express big ideas. The Bible uses big words. We would be impoverished indeed if we did not have words like justification or propitiation or sanctification. Words that it takes whole paragraphs, entire sermons, yea, even entire books just to flesh out. I would also remind you that you ought to thank the Lord that you don't still speak Greek. Uh, you heard Vernon bust out last week with metamorphumatha, which, by the way, he pronounced correctly from 2 Corinthians 3.18. That's the precise word that Paul used, and he chose it because no other word at his disposal could communicate the truth that he desired to convey. Paul wasn't trying to show off with a six-syllable word when a three-syllable word would do. He wanted to describe that inside-out transformation that takes place within the believer who continually beholds the glory of God in the face of Christ. A transformation that alters the very essence of our nature, our thoughts, our affections, our words, our actions, everything. A transformation, indeed, that causes us to shine, not with the fading glory of Moses, but with the surpassing, unfading glory of Christ. And there was only one word that Paul knew that would communicate that. Metamorphumatha. Literally, metamorphosis. Paul wanted to convey the fact that by beholding Christ, by the power of the Spirit, we are being metamorphosized. How? Well, funny you should ask. By that is by beholding, not looking, not seeing, but beholding. And again, no other word would do. So Paul selected another six syllable word. You get the point I'm trying to make here? Don't be off put by big words. Don't be afraid of them. Define them. There are treasures hidden within, and it's my job to unearth them for you. But the most important words in Scripture are not the big words. Given enough time and explanation, we could arrive at a pretty accurate definition of spiritual metamorphosis without actually using the word. The same cannot be said of those connective particles and prepositions which hold the arguments of Scripture together. Those are the most important words in the Bible. So that, in order that, for, because, therefore, upon all, upon those words, all of Scripture hangs. Because the Bible is not merely a collection of random, disconnected sayings and stories. The Bible presents arguments and arguments hang on little words. I'm convinced that one of the most important words in the Bible is a little three letter Greek particle ice translated unto so that, or in order that it indicates 
purpose. Those three little Greek words unveil the mind of the apostle for us. They unveil the mind of the spirit for us. They indicate aim, purpose. They answer the question of why. For instance, why did Christ die? Why did God put forth his beloved son to be brutalized and slaughtered on a Roman cross? Well, to save sinners, you might answer. And you'd be right to a point. Christ did die to save sinners. Or because God loves us. And again, you'd be right to a point. God did give his son in order to demonstrate his love for us. But neither of those answers is ultimate and each answer is insufficient in and of itself. Why did Christ have to die in order to save sinners? Why couldn't Jesus just forgive sinners? That's what we do. Death is not usually the way that we deal with offenses. You don't have to die in order to attain my forgiveness. Why did God have to kill his son in order to demonstrate his love for us? That's not the way we ordinarily demonstrate love. In fact, I'm not going to feel loved if you slaughter your child. I'm going to feel repulsed. So why did Christ die? And why did God put forth his son to death? Well, let's look at Romans 3.25 for a moment. Him, God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Why, Paul? In order to show ice. In order to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So taking that verse, let's ask those same two questions. Why did Christ die? Why did God put to death his son Because the mercy of God could not come to sinners apart from the righteousness of God, says Paul. Indeed, God does nothing in all his creation apart from his righteousness. The entire cosmos hangs on God being God and to God, or to be God rather, is to be righteous, to be holy with an H and holy, W-H, committed to that which is ultimately true and righteous, namely God. God cannot be for sinners unless God is first for God. God will not, he cannot set aside his holiness and righteousness in order to show mercy to sinners who are manifestly unholy and unrighteous. Why? Because that would be to call evil good and good evil. What would we call a judge who acquits the guilty? A judge who sets aside the law in order to pardon the lawless. We would call such a judge unjust. We would declare him unrighteous and we would demand that he step down from the bench. So what if God acted unrighteously in pardoning the wicked? What if God acted unrighteously in acquitting the guilty? He would deny himself and therefore cease to be God. And if God ceased for a second to be God, what would happen? 
I suppose the entire cosmos would instantaneously fold in on itself and just cease to exist. Of course, that cannot happen. It's only a hypothetical. Why? Because God cannot deny himself. 2 Timothy 2.13, by acting unrighteously. God cannot call evil good and good evil, true false and false true. God is not a man that he should lie. Therefore, God cannot justify the ungodly and declare those who are unrighteous to be righteous. He can't do it unless... Unless he puts forth his son, his righteous son, in the place of unrighteous sinners as a substitutionary, wrath-absorbing sacrifice of propitiation. Unless Christ, bearing all of the sins and the guilt of his people, becomes unrighteous, bearing our unrighteousness in our place. Unless God looks down upon him who knew no sin, but was made sin for us, and declares him guilty, and condemns him to death, and pours out his holy wrath upon him, and in this way demonstrates to all the world, to all humanity, to all the cosmos, to all the powers in heaven and on earth and in hell that his righteousness matters, that he is not a God to be despised, that sin is an ugly and hideous and destructive thing worthy of death and wrath. Unless God demonstrates that, which he did in the person of his son, when he put him forth to be a propitiation for our sins, then God cannot justify the ungodly. But he did. And so now, turning to the believing sinner, whose sins have been taken away, whose judgment and condemnation has already been transferred to Christ and meted out in the person of Jesus... And God declares those believing sinners to be eternally and irrevocably not guilty. No better than that, more than that, he declares them to be righteous because he counts Christ's righteousness as belonging to them through faith just as he counted their unrighteousness as belonging to Christ on the cross. So God put Christ forward in order to... Ice. Demonstrate his righteousness so that ice, he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God killed his son and Christ willingly died in order to vindicate the righteousness of God. And all of that glorious, shattering truth that we just pulled out of Romans 3, 25 to 26 hangs on a preposition. Just three little letters in the Greek, two little words in the English. So that. The most important words of the Bible are the little words. Likewise, my sermon this morning from Romans 15, 8 to 13, hangs upon a preposition. The same preposition, in fact, that we encountered in Romans 3, 25. Those three little Greek letters, E-I-S, ice, translated so that, in order that. And that little preposition found in verse 9 is going to answer for us two very big whys this morning that have immediate relevance to each and every one of you. 
Why did Christ die for you? There's question number one that that little preposition is going to answer. And number two, why does God give you the Holy Spirit? Second big question. Again, answered by a preposition. And in the end, we're going to find that the answer to those two questions, why did Christ die for you and why did God give you the Holy Spirit, are really one and the same answer. So we come this morning to the end of Romans. And I know what you're thinking. So we still have a chapter and a half. Well, that's true. But as you'll notice next week, the tone changes beginning at verse 14. Paul returns to his epistolary format, his his letter writing style. He becomes very personal again. He begins to speak of his personal ministry, his personal mission, his travel plans. He commends Phoebe, who evidently carried this letter from Corinth to Rome. He greets a host of friends and acquaintances that he has in the Roman church. In fact, the rest of Romans is going to sound very familiar and very similar to the first half of Romans chapter 1 up until verse 15, because there too, Paul was quite personal and he spoke of his personal desire to visit Rome, uh, which he had wanted to do for years, but was prevented from doing because of circumstances. But then in Romans 1, 16 and 17, Paul gives forth this glorious thesis statement that he then expands upon for the next 15 chapters. Romans 1.16, he said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And from that point on, Paul was off. It's hard to describe what Romans 1.16 to Romans 15, 13, actually is. Is it a sermon? Is it a letter? It's really neither. It's really a summary of Paul's gospel as applied to the lives of individual sinners and as applied to the life of a New Testament church. Paul had never been to Rome. He didn't plant the church in Rome. Rome, however, was strategic to Paul's future plans and his future ministry. Having preached and planted churches in every region of the Eastern Mediterranean and the Eastern Roman Empire, now his heart was consumed with a desire to head west, beyond Rome, all the way to Spain, where Christ had not yet been named. That's where he wanted to go. That's where he wanted to plant churches. And he needed the church at Rome to help him do that. We're going to talk in a few weeks about whether or not Paul's hope of going to Spain was ever realized. But here we see that in order to head west, Paul knew that he needed to establish a new staging point for his ministry, a new sending church from which he could go out fully supplied and to which he could return in the triumph of the gospel. Antioch had been that church for him in the Eastern Empire. He wanted Rome to be that church for him as he headed into the Western Empire. But there was one little problem. He'd never been there. The church did not know him, and he didn't know the church. 
It would be like writing a letter to a church today and asking them for full mission support, and they don't know your character, they don't know your person, and they don't know your doctrine. It's problematic, and Paul knew it. And so he writes this letter, which is the longest and most thorough treatment of his theology and gospel to be found in all of his writings in order to accomplish two things. Number one, he wanted to introduce himself as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore one they should support. And number two, he wanted to establish a connection between his gospel and their gospel. In other words, he wanted to make sure that their church was on the same playing field as his They had the same theology he did. He wanted to make this non-Pauline church at Rome Pauline so that they could then send him off to this new mission field in the Western Roman Empire. In other words, if he was going to link arms with the church at Rome to make the Roman church his new home church, he wanted it to have his doctrine, he wanted it to have his gospel. Paul established a church at Ephesus And he stayed there for three years. He planted the church at Corinth and he stayed there for a year and a half. With the church at Rome, Paul knew he didn't have that kind of time. So he took his his apostolic doctrine, he took his gospel, he distilled it into 15 chapters. 15 glorious, Christ-exalting chapters. And he applied it to the hearts of the sinners and he applied it to the life of the church there at Rome. Now why does all of this matter? Because today's passage is the conclusion of that theological portion. If Romans 1, 16 and 17 is the, is the left-handed bookend, Romans 15, 8 to 13 is the right-handed bookend. Everything between is gospel. In verses 8 to 13, Paul is not merely concluding his discussion of the weak and the strong begun at verse, or chapter 14. He's not, he's not merely concluding that ethical section that are, are applying the implications of the gospel to the life of the church beginning in chapter 12. I think Paul is concluding his entire doctrinal section that he began in chapter 1 and verse 16. There, Paul had declared that he was not ashamed of the gospel because it was the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, both Jew and Gentile. That's what he did at the beginning. Here, Paul is declaring the ultimate aim of that gospel of which he's not ashamed. Which, what, what is the final ultimate purpose of God's saving work in Christ, again, as it pertains to Jew and Gentile? So in a sense, this morning we're concluding what we began two years ago, I looked it up, on September 30th, 2018. We're concluding a 60-part study of the gospel of the righteousness of God. So this passage contains two distinct sections. The first declares the ultimate purpose of God's work in Christ among the Jews and the Gentiles. Why did Christ die for the Jews and Gentiles? Why did he do it? We're going to answer that first. The second establishes the ultimate purpose of God's work by the Spirit in our church. In other words, the two primary themes of Romans, right? The death of Christ, the work of the Spirit. He's going to deal with both of those and give us final answers this morning. We begin with the purpose of Christ's saving death. Now, as we saw earlier from Romans 3, 25 to 26, the answer, why did Christ die, goes deeper, must go deeper. 
than the typical Sunday school answers that you might receive, like to save sinners or to demonstrate his love. True, but not enough. And we know that because of a preposition. Look at verse 8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. I want to break that apart a phrase at a time. There are four of them. First, Paul says Christ became a servant to the circumcised. I'm going to argue that what Paul means there is Christ died for the Jews. I think it's a reference to Christ's death on the cross, his, his service as the suffering servant. Let me give you two verses that indicate this connection, that when Paul says Christ became a servant to the circumcision, he means Christ died on the cross for the Jews. The first is in Mark 10, 45, where Jesus himself links his service with his sacrificial death. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, same word, by the way, and to give his life as a ransom for many. How does Christ serve his people? By giving his life as a ransom for them. Paul, in Philippians chapter 2, identifies Christ's service as his sacrifice. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being found in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. So when Paul says that Christ became a servant to the Jews, I think he has in mind Christ's sacrificial death for the Jewish people. And you may be asking, didn't he die for the Gentiles as well? Yes, he did. But I think that Paul emphasizes Christ's role as the suffering servant of Israel as a parallel and bookend to his emphasis that the gospel of the righteousness of God has come to the Jew first. And also to the Greek. And he's going to get to the also to the Gentiles in this section. He's bookending Romans here. He's emphasizing Christ's role as the suffering servant of Israel because of a truth that he emphasized repeatedly in Romans. Namely, that the Jews are the first recipients of his gospel. And they'll be the last recipients of his gospel. Christ appeared first to the Jews. He was sent first to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Salvation came to the Jews first. Then and only then did it come to the Gentile nations. So Paul is saying here that Christ became a servant unto death for the Jews. That's the first phrase. Second phrase provides us with a little glimpse, our first glimpse of purpose. Why did Christ become a servant unto death for the Jews? And not coincidentally, that indication of purpose comes from a preposition. To show the truth of God. Christ became a servant, that is, he died for the Jews because of or for the sake of the truth of God. Well, what does that mean? It seems to me that it's the same truth Paul declared in Romans 3.25 when he said that Christ died Ultimately, to vindicate the righteousness of God. 
I think that's what Paul's saying here. Christ became a servant unto death for the circumcision, that is the Jews, to show or to demonstrate the truth that is the faithfulness, the righteousness of God. And I think that's borne out by the third phrase. In order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. And there again is that all-important preposition, ice, in order to, indicating purpose. Why did Christ die? Paul tells us, in order that God would remain faithful to his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Christ died in order that God would be found truthful. Now just, just pause and think about that for a second. God is so radically committed to his own faithfulness, to his own integrity, to his own trustworthiness, that he would rather his beloved son die as a sacrifice in the hand of sinners than that one of his promises should fail. He promised Abraham that Abraham would become the father of a multitude of nations and that he would be joined in an everlasting covenant. These descendants, this multinational people would become the covenant people of God. They would be his people. He would be their God. They would dwell in God's presence, in God's land, in God's blessing forever. That was the promise given to Abraham. Christ came and Christ died in order that God would be found faithful to that promise. Now note this because it's all important. Paul is saying here that the ultimate aim of the death of Christ was not the service he rendered to the Jews or to the Gentiles. The ultimate aim of Christ's death was the glory of God displayed in his unyielding faithfulness to his word of promise. Remember, God cannot be for you until he is first for God. Now, where do I get that? From a preposition. Fourth, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So now, finally, the Gentiles are brought into this this global redemptive picture. And they too are the objects of God's saving mercy and of Christ's saving service. So Christ, the Jewish Messiah, is a global savior, according to Paul. But again, you'll note that Paul is emphatic that the salvation of the Gentiles is not the ultimate aim or purpose of Christ's mercy. Christ became a servant, he died, for the Jews and the Gentiles in order that the Jews would glorify God for his faithfulness and that the Gentiles would glorify God for his mercy. God's glory is the ultimate aim of the gospel. At the end of the age... On the last day, when Christ appears in glory and power to gather his elect to himself and the redeemed from every tribe and tongue and people and nation are there in his presence, surrounding his throne, clothed in white robes that have been washed clean in the blood of the lamb, they're not going to be looking at themselves. They're not going to be singing to themselves saying, look at me. I am the supreme object of God's saving work in Christ. That's not what they're going to be doing. 
They're going to be standing before the throne and before the lamb. And they're going to be looking, beholding God and his Christ. And they will be shouting with a loud voice in unison. Salvation belongs to our God who sits upon the throne and to the lamb and the angels of God who have stood witness to all of God's marvelous works from beginning to end for whom, by the way, God demonstrated his righteousness. They're all going to fall on their faces in worship, shouting amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. The ultimate aim of the saving work of God in Christ is the glory of God in Christ. It's not you. Redemption is not ultimately about you. It's about God. You do not stand at the center of eternity. Revelation 7 isn't about you. God stands at the center of eternity. He's on the throne and at his right hand stands the lamb. The glory of God is the goal of the gospel. And where do we get that? From a preposition in Romans 15, 9. Well, Paul then supports this argument with four Old Testament quotations, all of them linked together by the common themes of Jews, Gentiles, and glory praising and rejoicing in God. The first comes from Psalm 1849. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. This is a Psalm of David and he's probably speaking typologically of Christ. In other words, Paul is reading David's words as pointing ahead to Christ's own words. In the words of David, Paul hears the words of Christ. And in this psalm, David is praising God for giving him victory over the Gentile nations who now serve him as God's anointed king. A few verses earlier in Psalm 18, David had said, You delivered me from strife with the people. You made me the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. And you can see how how Paul is hearing in David's words, Christ's own words, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples to all nations. By his death and resurrection, Christ has won victory over the nations. Some he will subdue in mercy, others he will subdue in judgment. But those who receive mercy, according to this psalm, will sing to his name. They will glorify God because of him. The second quotation comes from Deuteronomy 32, 43. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Now, whereas in the first quotation, it was Christ who was praising God because of what God had done for him in giving him reign and authority and victory over all of the nations. Now, the Gentiles, the conquered peoples, join the people of God in their rejoicing. So, Christ's victory is a victory of light over darkness, of mercy over judgment, of the spirit over sin, of freedom over slavery. That's what his victory looks like. In other words, you want to be conquered by Christ. Oh, to be conquered by such a king. What conquered people ever rejoiced in their defeat? What conquered people ever fell at the feet of their conqueror in overflowing joy and sang praises to his name? But that's what the Gentile nations do. 
Christ and his armies, that's the church, have laid siege to the cities of the Gentiles and have defeated them with the sword of the gospel and the power of the spirit. And Christ, like Joshua before him, has placed his foot upon the neck of the ruler of this world and has crushed his head beneath his feet. And now he calls out over the city walls. He calls to the Gentiles gathered within. He says, come out of her, my people. Come out and I will pardon you. Come out and I will make my covenant with you. Come out and I will be your God. And they do. They've been doing that for 2,000 years. They've been coming out of the cities of this world. And they've been joining the ranks of Christ. Not all of them, but many of them. Some will stay behind the city walls in their rebellion. And they will be tread underfoot just like their ruler. But those that come will join with the people of Christ. And what will they do? Are they glum, dismal slaves of this conquering king? They glorify God for his mercy. And the question is, will you be among them? Have you been conquered by Christ? Have you heard his call echoing over the walls of the city of this world? And have you abandoned this city with all of its lusts and all of its sins and all of its idols and all of its deceitfulness? And have you gone out and knelt before Christ and received of his mercy and then stood up clean before him and praised and glorified him for the same? The third quotation comes from Psalm 117 verse 1. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. So who has been shown mercy? The Gentiles. And who receives the praise and the exaltation and the glory? God. The Gentiles receive mercy. God receives glory. The fourth quotation comes from Isaiah 11.10. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in whom will the Gentiles hope? And here for the first time, we have the first reference, direct reference to Jesus. He is the root of Jesse of whom Isaiah spoke, the root of Jesse who was to come, who was to die as a suffering servant and who has arisen to rule the nations. But it's a saving rule. It's a merciful rule for in him, the Gentiles hope. So what's the point of all these quotations? Why did Paul bring these Old Testament texts in? One from the uh, law, two from the writings, and one from the prophets. He he did it in order to emphasize the point that he was making up in verses 8 and 9. That the nations receive mercy and God receives glory. But only one of the two is ultimate. God is not glorified in order that the nations may receive mercy. The nations receive mercy in order that God may be glorified. That's Paul's point. He's been talking about the gospel for 15 chapters. We've been unpacking the gospel for two years. And what's the point? Underneath it all, underneath everything. Every chapter, every verse, every doctrine, ever underneath everything, what's there? To the praise of the glory of his grace. And where do we get that? It's from a preposition. Now let me pause and ask you, how does that make you feel? Does that make you glad? Or does it make you sad? It's a serious question. How does it strike you that you are not the goal of the gospel? 
that at the end of 15 chapters, there's not you receiving mercy, there's God receiving glory. How does it strike you that underneath at the bottom of all of Christ's saving work is not the aim of saving you, but rather the aim of glorifying God? And that's not an insignificant nor an irrelevant question. It's supremely relevant. Why? Because if you are the most important, most glorious being in your own personal universe, then you haven't yet beheld the glory of God in Christ. If there's not something deep within your soul that rises up with an amen when I say that the glory of God is the goal of the gospel, I don't think you're born again. Because regeneration does something about all of that. It 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 shifts the gravitational center of your soul. When you're not born again, you are pleased to have God orbit around your own little star. Everything in your universe orbits around you. It's all directed towards you. When somebody is born again, this Copernican revolution shifts in their soul and suddenly God in the blazing glory of this million billion lumen sun becomes the gravitational center of your universe and you rejoice to orbit around him. That's what it means to be born again. And so when I come to you, when Paul comes to you and declares the, the goal of the gospel is the glory of God, not the salvation of sinners, born again people say, uh-huh, because it's right It's right that the most glorious being in all of the universe would glorify himself above all things. It would be wrong for him to say, yes, I'm supremely glorious, and in my glory do all things find their existence, but I'm going to set that aside, and I'm going to make much of you. So how does this passage strike you? If you've been born again, if you have seen the glory of God in the face of Christ, then now you can't look away because nothing else is as beautiful, it's not as glorious, it's not as compelling, least of all you. Now you delight in God being God, and God being God means God being glorious. But, with it established, on the basis of a preposition, that redemption is not ultimately about you, but about God, I want to conclude by saying that this should not make you feel unloved. And this should not make you feel used. Because the gospel is not an either-or proposition. Either God is for God, or God is for you. Take that either-or way of thinking and, and chuck it in the theological trash can, where it belongs. God pours out upon you grace upon grace, mercy upon mercy, overflowing endless rivers of peace and joy in order that you would say, I delight in you and in your delight in him comes his greater glory. The gospel is an in and through proposition. God glorifies himself in and through your blessing, your mercy, your joy, your glory. Your glorification. You were created for joy. Not outside of God or in something other than God, but in God himself. 
God is infinitely enjoyable and you were uniquely created to enjoy him. God is supremely glorious and you were uniquely created to delight in his glory. Sin ruined that capacity in all of us. And it caused us to delight in things that are ugly and wicked and evil and deceitful and destructive. But Christ came and he died and he rose again and he sent his spirit to dwell in and, and renew within us a capacity to enjoy God again, to delight in God's glory. That is to delight in God's godness again and anew so that for those who are redeemed by the blood of Christ, for those in whom the spirit dwells, for those who have been born again, for those who believe God's exalting his own glory is at the same time God working for your everlasting good and joy. Not either or, both and, in and through. Your greater joy in God redounds to his greater glory. That's why he designed this whole gospel thing in that as you receive mercy, eternal life, everlasting joy, he receives the greater glory. God gets glory and you get joy. In your joy... God gets glory. Now, where do I get that from today's text? From a preposition. I want you to trace Paul's flow of logic with me. Stay with me. We're almost done. Trace Paul's flow of logic with me. Christ became a servant, right? Verse 8. He died in order to vindicate God's faithfulness in the sight of the Jews and to bring mercy to the Gentiles in order that he would be glorified. So the Jews see the promises of God fulfilled in Christ and they glorify God. The Gentiles see the mercy of God in Christ and they glorify God. Both Jews and Gentiles praise God, rejoice in God, hope in God. So says the Old Testament. That's verses 9 through 12. Now in verse 13, Paul prays that what he has just described on this universal scale will be personally experienced by the church at Rome. So we could take that and we could say, all right, in verse 13, the Holy Spirit intends what has just been described on a global, timeless, universal scale to be experienced and felt and enjoyed by the saints here at First Baptist Nixa. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. All right, let's take that one phrase at a time. There are four. First, Paul asks that the God of hope would fill you with all joy and peace. All joy and all peace. Filled with it. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? It's quite an image. It's an even better reality. I want that. At the beginning of this sermon, I prayed for an experience. Because that's what Paul is describing here in verse 13. This ought to be an effect of the gospel upon your life and upon this church. We ought to be filled with all joy and all peace. I want to know that joy and peace. Not by mere intuition, but by real experience and overflowing joy and peace in God. I felt it this week. And it was, it was odd that my... I, I experienced Romans 15, 13. I kid you not, it happened about 6 o'clock p.m. in that office back there as I was writing this sermon. And my first inclination was to post about it on Facebook. And I thought, why would I do that? 
Why would I interrupt this joy and peace that is flowing into my heart through the Holy Spirit in the text as I'm beholding Christ in order to tell people that it's happening? So I resisted the urge. And I just enjoyed it. It wasn't external. It wasn't circumstantial. It was spiritual. For about an hour and a half, I rejoiced in God by beholding Christ in his word. And, I, and it didn't last. Why? Because we're still in this flesh. We still have to go home and deal with responsibilities and pay bills and, and deal with the sickness of our own heart, right? But I want that again. And that's what Paul's praying for. And I want it for you. Second, this joy and peace comes in believing. So I experienced this flood of joy and peace because I was beholding the gospel and believing it. It didn't happen when I was watching YouTube. It didn't happen while I was watching TV. It didn't happen while I was paying bills. It happened as I was meditating on Romans 15. It was joy and peace in believing. And where does believing come from? Believing comes from beholding. For faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Third, what is the aim or the purpose of God in filling you with all joy and peace and believing? So that, there's our familiar preposition again, so that you may abound in hope. Well, why does the God of hope want you to abound in hope? I suggest it goes back to verse 9. So that you would glorify God for his mercy. And you can trace the theme of mercy and hope and joy all the way through those Old Testament quotations. God fills you with all joy and peace experientially, existentially, not intuited, not reasoned to, but felt and experienced. And he gives you these moments, those nights in your office, those mornings in your living room, those worship services at church. And when he gives you a taste of his glory and of his goodness and of his mercy and beauty and majesty, and you're finally satisfied in, in, you, in, in him and you think, if this is what eternity is like, then come quickly, Lord Jesus. Jesus. And what is the result? You hope in him. You rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You receive hope and God receives glory. God likes being delighted in. So he causes you to delight. That's what's described in verse 13. Finally, this happens by the power of the Holy Spirit. In believing, by the Spirit. Pay attention to the prepositions. Faith comes by the Word and the Spirit. Always, Word and Spirit, Spirit and Word. Just like last week in 2 Corinthians 3.18, we're being transformed into the image of Christ by beholding Christ in His Word, and this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. In other words, this is something that you can't make happen. Rather, it is something for which you can pray, and Paul does. And it's something you can seek by continually beholding the glory of Christ in the word. 
My world was turned upside down several years ago, theologically at first, but increasingly experientially, uh, by reading John Piper's most famous and, to my mind, most important book, Desiring God. And the, the main argument of that book is that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. In other words, God receives the most glory from his creatures when they enjoy him, not, not merely his gifts, although you can glorify God by enjoying his gifts if you receive them as his gifts, but more than that, enjoying him, his glory, his beauty, his supremacy over all things, his being God. And the book begins with Piper changing the, a single word in one of the most famous theological statements of all time, right? The first answer of the Westminster Shorter Catechism says that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And Piper resists that. He says, and like ham and eggs, Sometimes you glorify God and sometimes you enjoy him. Sometimes he gets glory and sometimes you get joy. And so he changes the and to a by. The chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. And then he spends the next 300 pages attempting to prove that that second formulation is more biblically, more theologically accurate. Namely, that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied. That is, when we are most enjoying him. And that's the same point that I've tried to make to you this morning. It's the same point that I think that Paul's driving at in Romans 15. Indeed, that he's been driving at since the very beginning of Romans 1. You don't have to choose between being infinitely happy and God being infinitely glorified because God has intertwined your joy and his glory. You don't have to choose between your receiving mercy and God receiving glory. In God creating you in his image and redeeming and restoring you to the image of his son, God has eternally united your joy and his glory. So the the application of this text is, go enjoy God. And that will bring him more glory than anything else you could possibly do. Why did Christ die in order to glorify God? Why did God send you the Holy Spirit in order that you would enjoy him? And those two aims are one. So would you stand together for the benediction? I'm going to pray this over you. Now may the God of hope fill you, 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 with all joy and peace in believing. May he do that so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. And if you want that for you, say amen.